Good morning. Good morning. I'm Warren Brown, if you don't know me. I'm teaching this morning, for better or worse. Um, Emily reminded us that we are dealing with the temptations of Christ out of Luke 4 in our teaching for this uh, time of Lent. And I have a theme of, I actually don't need that, put up the first one and we're, there we go. Uh, and we're, we are uh, teaching and thinking around a theme of surrender. And so today, this morning, we want to deal with uh, Luke 1 through 5, and uh, this will be the only PowerPoint. We'll just leave it there, and you can meditate it on the whole time. Jesus returned from the Jordan River, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and afterwards Jesus was starving. The devil said to him, since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, it is written, people won't live only by bread. So there's another a number of important words here that actually link this story into the longer narrative of the Bible. They are words like wilderness and 40 days and hungry and bread and it is written, God's word. Uh, and so if we uh, feed back a little, uh, the uh, words of Jesus are from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, and those same words occur, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the same thing seems the same idea, feedback. We can feed forward uh, and look at John uh, chapter 8, verses 25 through 34. Same themes. themes. Uh, this is after uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness when they were hungry, and then uh, Jesus walking on the water and then the next morning, he's on the other side of the lake. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but the food that endures to eternal life, which is son of man, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must, we do, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
So they ask him, what sign then will you give that we see it and believe you? What will you do? Our, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And to feed forward even further is to feed forward to the Last Supper and Jesus giving the bread that is his body. Jesus becomes the bread that we need. He gives us his bread through his death and life. And we experience that at the end of each service as we partake of Eucharist as we will do today. So there are elements in this passage that need to be kept in mind that link Jesus, um, this passage of scripture to the whole narrative of scripture. I think it was, uh, Brad last week made the comment when Josh asked the question about what ideas does this sort of bring to your mind. And Brad said that Jesus was content not to sort of seize the narrative himself, but allow the narrative of these moments to be the narrative of the scriptures uh, as a whole. And I think uh, that's really important for us to think about. So this is a, also a temptation story. I think, you know, that puts us all in context. But now to think about this as a temptation story, uh, I have three thoughts on this as a temptation story and one thought about my thoughts. And uh, we'll get that, that at the end. When I preach, I often just end up talking to myself or when I'm thinking about this, thinking about, you know, how this grips me. And so I'll just give you the thoughts that I have about this um, in putting it together in my own mind. Fasting uh, is a form of spiritual discipline. It's things we do like Lenten practices, things like, you know, sugar fast or abstaining from alcohol or, or doing certain things that we didn't, wouldn't ordinarily do or spending more time in meditation or prayer, or solitude, or simplicity. These are spiritual disciplines. And I want to first, my first thought is to raise the point, so what's the point? What is the point of spiritual disciplines? Uh, perhaps you have seen the documentary uh, Free Solo. Anybody seen Free Solo? Freaks me out. <laughs> Alec Hanold climbs El Capitan without ropes, no safety, incredible danger, incredible risk if he slips two or 3,000 feet drop and he's dead. That's it. It's an incredible feat. The rock is sheer. The grips are in many places not much. And he's sort of hanging there by a couple of fingers and his toes on a little bit of rock and it's just... Uh, an amazing thing. And so kind of thinking about free, free solo, which I'd seen and kind of in my mind, as a metaphor for Christian life and disciplines like fasting, a couple of questions came to my mind. 
One is, are our spiritual disciplines solo performances uh, in which we hope to achieve some greater spirituality, to ascend to some spiritual peak, uh, to achieve some higher level of personal spiritual life? Is that what our disciplines are about? And the second question I have is, are our engagement and spiritual disciplines really solo at all? Um, there's a tendency for the writers about spiritual disciplines and spiritual life. An example is a really good book, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, to talk about these, and this is not quite a fair comment, but it's something like self-focus that the spiritual disciplines are somehow focused on me. So he talks about inward disciplines of meditation, prayer, fasting, uh, which are avenues of personal examination and change, and outward disciplines, things like simplicity, solitude, submission, service, which are to help us make uh, uh, the world a better place, or corporate disciplines like confession and worship and guidance, celebration, which brings us nearer to one another, nearer to God. And, you know, that is, all of that is really important. But to think about exactly important for what, and where, and there's a little bit of tendency for us, for these writers to bring this to us as if it's about us as individual persons and our own spirituality. There's an undertone of individuality. And I don't think the practices uh, of spiritual disciplines are like free solos, that they are for our own, think we do on our own for our own achievement or to achieve some uh, goal. Uh, if you watch the, the free solo documentary, it's clear that this isn't quite solo. Uh, first of all, there's video photographers hanging on ropes all the way along photographing him, so he's not like totally up there by himself. And there are actually escape ropes, which at one point, Alex goes up partway, decides, you know, this is not the day, this, I shouldn't be doing this today, climbs over to escape rope, rappels down, and he's off the hill. So there, it's not like he's totally free until it's not like he walked over someday and thought, you know what, I'm going to climb that mountain. I think I could do it by myself and climbs up the mountain. Um, he spent a lot of time, or he climbed a route, first of all, that had been climbed many times by others. So he wasn't sort of reinventing this route or this thing. This was a well-established route to climb El Capitan. Dangerous for absolute sure, but nevertheless a well-established route. And he spent a lot of time on the, the face of El Capitan, hanging by ropes with other climbers, figuring out exactly how to do this. He actually spent years preparing for this. And he spent a couple of years with Tommy Caldwell. Tommy Caldwell is the climber from the documentary Don Wall, which is another documentary about climbing, and he's, you know, famous, incredible expert climber, which was the first climber to climb the Don Wall, right around the corner from where they were uh, 
climbing on El Capitan. But he and Tommy Caldwell were hanging by ropes going up and down that face of El Capitan to figure out exactly how to climb this. So it wasn't like he even figured this all out by himself. Tommy Caldwell was, and he were going back and forth about, you know, you should make this move here or take this route here. Do you can make that part this way and whatever. So he spent a lot of time, uh, you know, with other people taking notes, looking at every possible route and every possible way to make uh, the moves. So I, I really think our times of spiritual discipline, I wonder whether our times of spiritual discipline are like a solo climb or more like Alex Hanold's time of preparation. There are times in which we sort of ready ourselves for the work that, in fact, God has for us to do. And also uh, think about uh, spiritual disciplines and our individual spiritual lives and whether or not they really, in essence, have something to do primarily with the body as a whole. So if I were to imagine uh, or think about, the, or the image I had in thinking about Free Solo and El Capitan, and this is a metaphor for the Christian life, was that in fact, it's not about a free solo climb, it's about the fact that we're all on this mountain roped together. And we are connected to one another, helping each other figure out how to make whatever climb or, or whatever task we're on. And that there's no such thing as free solo in the Christian life, I might say, that when we are alone, we are vulnerable. When we are roped together with one another in the body of Christ, we are not as vulnerable as we are out there trying to do this by ourselves. So for Jesus, this time of fasting, I think, was a time of mindfulness and prayer and preparation for a journey that he was to take, a journey that eventually led to uh, his death and resurrection. And one other point is when we are by ourselves alone, I don't think we, you can say that we are ever actually by ourselves that we're never really alone in these practices, that, that we learn these practices, practices of prayer and imagination and an understanding ourselves and the larger narrative of God's work. We, we learn that from the body of Christ. We learn and we take that into our times of private prayer and meditation. So we're never really alone in those times. We are, are nested within the context of the body of Christ. Uh, Brad Stone and I just sent a book to the publishers called Supersizing Christian Life, which is very much about this idea that we are never alone. So if you want to read more of that. So our, our, uh, on this first point, our theme is surrender. So this point, surrender for me, is to give up the individualism of my own spiritual life and my desire to achieve some personal level of spirituality, but rather to invest my time in preparing to work towards the aims of God with the people of God. So that's one thought. Another thought I had was about shortcuts. 
So last Sunday when Josh asked us about what we were thinking in respect to these the passages on Jesus' temptation, the thought that first came to my mind were shortcuts, taking shortcuts. Uh, shortcuts to the kind of destinations we think are good, but we just sort of take off on our own. And so uh, when I was a kid, I learned with my father to backpack and camp and all that. So we spent a lot of time on trails in the high Sierras. And one of the first things you learn is you don't cut switchbacks. You know, switchback, the trail goes like this, and then it goes like this, and like this. Of course, the active little kid, I go here, no, I don't want to go clear over there, I'll go down here, and I'll go down here, and I'll cut what I call cutting switchbacks. You don't cut switchbacks at first, but you don't take shortcuts. You don't take shortcuts for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're riskier. You're always kind of going down rocks and steeper, and it's just not a grand thing to do. And second thing, every time you cut switchbacks, several people do that, pretty soon you end up a little channel down there, and it erodes the trail. And that for uh, when the spring runoffs come, it just breaks down the trail. So you don't cut switchbacks because there's ripple effects that affects other people uh, afterwards. And so uh, I think we have this temptation or I certainly do, to uh, look for just sort of an easier, quicker way to shortcut the problem or shortcut the thing and just get this thing done in kind of my own agenda, my own way of doing this. Uh, this certainly was Peter's temptation several times in Scripture. Peter several times wants to take a shortcut. Jesus says no. You know, that's not the way we're going to do. That's not what we're going to do. That's not how this is going to go about it. Uh, so I often get impatient. Um, another uh, idea of sort of not taking switch, uh, cut shortcuts. I heard uh, Vince Carter. Uh, you know who Vince Carter is? Vince Carter is a pro basketball player, plays for the Atlanta Hawks. And he's still playing effectively, scoring a lot of points and whatever, at 42. And this interview was about he's going to continue to play 43 and maybe beyond. And so the question was, how can you do this? What is your secret to being able to play professional basketball that old? And he says, uh, the secret is you don't miss any steps in your physical condition. You do not take court shortcuts you make every you take into account everything every diet thing every exercise thing every program every day of the week uh, and you just don't take shortcuts so easy to think well today i'm not feeling so good i'll just kind of take a shortcut and not do it today and he says don't take shortcuts uh, and cutting corners and shortcuts usually has long-range consequences, most of which are not foreseen at the time. They have ripple effects. So rather than so, sort of patiently walking down the path before us, we want to sort of assert control, manipulate the situation, seize the narrative, and get something done sort of our way in our imagination and kind of jump forward and shortcut across the process. Uh, 
I told you a couple of weeks ago about at offering time about my Fridays with Paul, sort of my versions of Tuesday with Maury. So Paul's a friend of mine whose wife Becky is dying of cancer and he's in Jackson, Wyoming, so he and I talk by Skype or what he calls the video phone process. Don't even know what you call it. I use it, I don't know. What's FaceTime? FaceTime, there you go. I don't know what you call it, I just use it. And we talk about, you know, I've been through some of what Paul's going through, and so we talk about how do you cope with this, how do you make your way through this. And our reflections have been a lot about the fact that these situations are places where you can help, but you can't manage. You can be of help, but you just can't manage the situation. We need to be just present and patient and not rush forward and take shortcuts to uh, trying to solve a problem that is really not solvable. Uh, his sister was there and he was telling me his sister just was not able to sit with Becky and just be with her, just sit. She had to run and sort of manage their teenage children or manage something and thing and kind of jump in and get something done that felt like you were sort of getting in and getting the thing taken care of. Uh, Paul so sent me a connection to a Ignatian spirituality blog thing by Marina McCoy, and this is something that was meaningful to uh, Paul and had to do with our conversations about trying to be, be overly controlling in a situation we can't control. Uh, so Marina writes, when March rolls around in New England, I eagerly look forward to the arrival of spring and new plant life, only to discover that, same as last year, meteorological spring comes a lot sooner than the spring soil that allows ground to be workable and new life to emerge. I'm not an especially patient person. I hate waiting and doing nothing and the frustration that ensues when the ground and cold weather seem not to change. I fall prey to March and even April blues, whether the patient waiting is for the garden itself or for the garden as a metaphor for relationships, work, and other parts of my life, where the ground is not as fruitful as I would like it. I want the ground to thaw and to be workable, and I want it now. And so often in God's work, it's easy to just kind of jump ahead and want it now. Josh and I were talking about this this week, and he pointed out that so many of the things that have happened around mountainside have been things that God has brought our way that we didn't, weren't necessarily looking for. So the whole development of IRC and the homelessness prevention and community garden, so many things were not parts of the narrative of mountainside that we were trying to construct on our own. This became a part of our life as God brought these things uh, to us. So without trying to control the narrative of mountainside, God has brought us into a life that has certain parts and, and important things that we have been able to do.
So on this point, my surrender is not to manage the narrative of my life and to patiently wait to allow God's lead. Not to cut corners and push around, uh, push ahead of where God is working in my life and in our life. So the third thought, last thought, came to me thinking about this and thinking about temptation and suddenly remembered a book I had read many years ago called The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazantzakis. I can pronounce that one time, but don't ask me to do it again. <laughs> it was also a movie, a, a, a Martin Corsese, Corsese movie. So it's a movie about, it's a book and movie about the humanity of Jesus and the reality of temptation and thinking about real temptations in life, looking more at the humanity of Christ. And the story ends with this scenario. So here's the scenario. In a, visit, in a vision that seems real, both to you as a reader and uh, presumably to Christ, Christ is tempted on the cross by Satan in the form of a guardian angel who tells him he is not the Messiah, so come down from the cross and live a normal, happy, married life. Uh, in this vision, he yields to the temptation, but because of the unintended consequences of that decision and the chaos it causes, he relents, goes back to Golgotha, pleads with God to let him be the Messiah, at which point the vision ends, he is still on the cross, and he has resisted the last temptation. So the last temptation of Christ in this is a temptation to just take an easy path towards well-being and happiness. Just sort of avoid anything that looks like sacrifice. And I find in myself a strong tendency most of the time to just sort of automatically move towards what is easy and comfortable and secure and predictable and uh, not discomforting, not sacrificial, not unusual, uh, doesn't sort of impose anything on me. And I think that's a fairly core thing about us. And it's not that these things are bad at all, but I wonder about my own tendencies to just sort of make that automatic move towards the comfortable and towards the um, predictable. Uh, in Free Solo, Alex Honnold is uh, having a conversation with his girlfriend about the real possibility, maybe 50-50, that he falls off the face of Capitan and kills himself and dies. And he says, he asks this question, this is my paraphrase, I don't remember exactly how I said it, but it was something like, is it my obligation to live a long life? Is it my obligation to live a long life? And he answers his own question, he says, no. He says, not if it means not doing something significant. So it was this tension between taking the road that is easier and is accommodating and, and, and kind of makes my life nice and a, a road that may involve some sacrifice, some risk, whatever. So here I, th I think about 
how to surrender my strong inclination to just simply take the way that is safe and easy and predictable and kind of the way things have always been. So those are the three things I was thinking about, but here's sort of my thoughts on my thoughts, or my thought on my thoughts, or something like that. Uh, it is important to recognize how difficult and messy this whole conversation about temptation becomes when we try to translate it into our daily lives. It's just difficult, messy, um, to all kinds of things happening, difficult to figure out exactly what to do. Our choices are seldom absolute, clear, uh, with obvious implications. They're usually blurry, uncertain, not sure whether I should do this or that. Uh, we always have mixed motives. So when doing X, am I really doing X because that's nice for me or it makes me feel good about myself or I'm doing X because, you know, it's an important thing to do or the right thing to do or the things that maybe God calls me to do. We always have mixed motives, which makes us also messy and difficult. It's easy to talk about, easy to say, not so easy to do. Uh, I find myself in the end just kind of mucking around in my life, praying that in the end, somehow, God's purposes might be advanced through my actions and my choices, because it's just not all that clear, as much as we uh, like to think that it might be in reading or um, and thinking about this. And, and, and it's easy even to think that Christ was not actually tempted like we are, that our temptations are dealing with sort of conflicting ideas, motives, desires, and to think that, that maybe this just wasn't Christ, you know, it was always very clear cut. So we deal with things, some are good, some are bad, some are neutral, and it's often very hard to tell the difference and to arbitrate between them. So when thinking about fasting and disciplines, you know, we have these mixed motives in our spiritual lives, mixtures of me as self versus me in relationship, and how do I balance these and how do I differentiate these? Uh, and taking shortcuts is very difficult to d discern when, you know, the decision to do this, you know, is just like blowing past everything and taking a shortcut, or whether this, in fact, is a good and efficient and the right way to do things. Take cutting switchbacks is definitely a more efficient, shorter or quicker way to get down the mountain. But, you know, if you don't stop and think about it, it has its implications. And avoiding discomfort and sacrifice, you know, our well-being is natural motive for us and a good motive for us. And then it's in the, con in the context of that, it's hard to think about and discern when God might be calling us into some domain which involves something that's not as comfortable, not as regular, not as easy, and uh, more demanding of sacrifice. So, to end here, my last surrender, I'll turn this over to Josh here in a second, my last surrender is to the realization that understanding these passages on Jesus' temptation 
in the context of my own life is beyond me. It takes wisdom, prayer, and most of all, my church. Josh?